You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Nicholas Harrison. He is a professor of French and post-colonial studies at King's College London. During his student years, he worked as a teacher at the University of Tunis, at a school in rural Quebec, and at the ENS in Paris. He returned to the UK to take up a junior research fellowship at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge in 1992. There, he began work on Francophone literature of the Maghreb and went on to become the first person to teach that material at Cambridge and then at University College London. His research interests are quite diverse, searching across film, translation studies, and comparative literature, but one of his recurring concerns has been the sort of political work that literary texts and also films are understood to do, or imagined to do, by writers, censors, critics, and teachers. His first book, Circles of Censorship, appeared in 1995, his second, Postcolonial Criticism, History, Theory, and the Work of Fiction in 2003, and his third, which we will discuss today, is titled Our Civilizing Mission, The Lessons of Colonial Education, which is now available on open access. So we're here today with Dr. Nicholas Harrison. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. So before we get into the project, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of this project, a sort of invitation to narrate us into it. What sort of concerns, personal, ethical, philosophical, drew you to the questions in our civilizing mission? Thanks. Yeah, well, um, that story really starts and ends with the question of education. Um, um, I studied French and German originally at university just because I was interested in them, um, in those languages and their literatures. I I spent, because um, it's a language degree, I spent a year abroad and that year was in Tunisia. And I'd, that was a, a very important experience for me and, a, you know, a life-changing one. Um, I hadn't traveled much before at that time. I hadn't, um, I'd only been to France a couple of times. I'd only been once outside Europe, and that was to a, um, a summer camp on Long Island, of all things, um, to work as a counsellor. Anyway, um, Tunisia was very important and um, made me interested in in the Francophone world, in imperialism, and so on. Um, there was no chance at that time in my university. I was at, at Cambridge University there was no opportunity to study any so-called Francophone literature. I mean, Cambridge wasn't unusual in that. It was taught in very, very few places at that time in the UK, as I think in the US and, uh, you know, pretty much everywhere I'm aware of. Um, but I, um, I mean, this was sort of mid eighties and I, I, I wrote a PhD about literary censorship in France, not, not about the Maghreb at all, but I got a research fellowship um, which I, when I was free to do kind of what I wanted for three years, essentially. And, um, and at that point I started 
reading really seriously in Francophone literature of, of the Maghreb because of that interest I had for my time in Tunisia. Um, I was aware too of, um, you know, the kind of upsurge of work in post-colonial studies already. This is like the early 90s. Um, but I started reading it really with a view to teaching it. I didn't know what I wanted to write about it or anything like that. It was all pretty much new to me, but I just wanted to kind of get into the area so that I could teach it. And I'm very proud of the fact that then I was, I, I had, um, subsequently I had a, what we'd call a lectureship, you could call a professorship, I guess, um, at, at Cambridge. I was the first person at Cambridge to, to teach that material. And, you know, so I'm sort of proud of what I'd done on that, that front. Um, I guess at a certain point, um, um, I mean, when I've been reading and teaching this stuff for a couple of decades, I, I guess I just, when I go back into my notes, I found very early on, I found something saying, maybe there's a whole book here, question mark, just in my notes on a particular book, because I was struck at just how much there was about colonial education in all of the novels and memoirs and so on that I read. Um, quite understandably, I mean, th- these were these were writers for whom French remained... Um, not exactly a foreign language, but a language sort of tainted with foreignness, um, um, even if it was the only language in which they were literate, um, um, even though it was a language from which you might say that from a certain linguistic or literary point of view, they were completely at home, you know. Um, um, but nonetheless, there was this sense of sort of alienation with it within the language um, and within that literary framework as well. And of course, it was colonial education that had brought them to this place that had made their works possible and the works often reflected back on that. And, you know, and I, for one, was grateful that those works existed. I was feeding them back into a kind of French educational process, um, while at the same time, I was, like nearly all of these writers, hostile to colonialism. So you see all these things kind of are all, um, you know, sort of coming together in my mind in a certain way and, and, and a set of questions um, about colonial education, which I was interested in treating on the one hand as a, as a dimension of colonialism, um, but but I was also interested in trying to take it seriously as um, an example of education. So asking what was colonial about colonial education, um, what, but also what might have been educational for them in their colonial education, and what about it then might also be educational for us as readers and educators further down the line and so I think one of the questions in the francophone and even in the Maghreb with Arabic the question that just never seems to die (laughs) is this question of language and what language should you know um, authors write in especially if they're coming from the francophone world so I guess I'm curious while you're while you were working on this project and even as you look back at it how do you think you know, your project kind of answers that question, because I think to one degree it does. But how do you think about this question around, you know, that conversation of, well, you know, Francophone authors should either only write in French or they should only write in, you know, the colonial language, or they should know mm. some of them should, like in Gugi, should they should stick to their mother tongue and their mm. native language. So, yes, there's this conversation with, um, you know, well, publication and who is the audience but what do you think, what is your thinking around that, you know, with the project that you've worked on? Yeah, I mean, I, so I suppose part of my thinking is that, that, that you know, that question of which language you write in, I do think is a really important one. As I, and I say this partly as someone who's taught primarily in 
French departments and French programs, as I mean, as well as Complit to some extent. Um, and so in that framework, it's, you know, for my students who are all majoring in French and learning French to a good standard, it's, you know, we've got this whole ethos of reading it in the original language. And, you know, that's very important in the idea that a particular language is tied up with a particular worldview. So I do think that question is important. Um, it's one of the reasons I work on the kind of material I do, where the fact that my attempts to learn Arabic have been pretty... Um, unsuccessful is <laughs> not too much of a hindrance you know so placing myself in this kind of f- francophone educational environment in terms of my focus makes sense in those terms but I mean often often when that issue is discussed I suppose it's discussed as a kind of choice and of course this just wasn't a choice for these writers um, for uh, you know, I talked about that sense of alienness, even when it was their only language or the only language in which they were literate, which is the case for quite a number of the people of this earlier generation who grew up under colonialism. Um, and so this, this is a language that was um, imposed upon them in a sense, you know, um, but um, from which they felt at a certain point in certain ways that they they benefited as well, or that, you know, certainly I felt I was benefiting from their exposure mm-hmm. to it. Right. So, um, so in a way, once you, once you've taken that, once you stop thinking it was a choice, then it becomes, uh, I suppose it feels less fraught in a sense. It's a different issue for writers for whom it really is a choice, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm giving it. It sounds like maybe you should answer this question. You've got some good ideas in it, but, I, but, um, but, but, you know, there's something about the, yeah, the, the, the specificity of the language is very important to them. And there's no doubt that times they feel compromised in some sense politically by the fact they're writing in French, but nonetheless, by, by writing there in some sense, um, you know, playing the hand that's being dealt to them in a, in a way that, of course, I think is completely, well, not just legitimate, but something that's very, you know, that they can use in a very rich way. Yeah, and I agree. Thank you for answering. That's a very, I know it's a big question, you know, that's, that's been going on. <laughs> and so, but it, it does help to always remember to put it into context um, and remember, like you said, these were the cards that they were dealt with. And if they were to say, because now I'm thinking, well, can we have this whole topic in post-colonial studies of writing back to the empire if they were writing in a different language Mm. well you know that seems like a whole alternative timeline writing Mm. back to the empire consisted of writing back in french in most Mm. cases so um yeah it, it does remember it does help to remember that it's they weren't exactly given that choice as authors have now and we we benefited from their works until this day all the works that were written and translated into all these languages we still admire those works <laughs> right yeah yeah exactly and have good reasons to do so and i guess it's not i mean it's it's nobody's choice what language they learn at you know at, mm-hmm. at, at, at a first point it may become a choice at a certain level but kind of it only becomes a choice around the time where it's going to be almost impossible for you to become, you know, to feel completely at home in that language. You know, it's the age where you're getting choices at school, but most of the time it is to do with your circumstances. And um, and for very many people, of course, that that means uh, bilingualism or multilingualism. You know, the, the um, part of the... I mean, I think one of the ironies of the debates ar- around it is that I always feel that although I think it's important which language you write in for reasons I touched on just now, some of the kind of 
political charge around that comes comes is is, is the legacy of a of nationalist ideologies around language and and the association you know the associations of languages with nations in a way that's crude and misleading you know so there's a sense in which it's we're against that historical backdrop it's it's assumed that to use the language is to express you know a certain sort of a political affiliation to the nation with which the language is most most associated and i mean that's and in some ways that's truer with french than it is with english say which has been has been sort of multi-centered for mm-hmm. so long that i don't think you know it, it, english isn't necessarily always associated now with with england or with britain and already that hesitation between the two points to part the problem of the notion of national languages right so there's an irony if people have kind of taken on board too quickly the, the idea that French is a kind of repository and um, vehicle of Frenchness. I mean, there's a sense in which that's true, but it's also vastly overstated um, and misrepresented in a certain nationalist framework, to my mind. And so to that, can you tell us a little bit about the title? So our civilizing mission? <laughs> Yeah, I mean... Um, also, did it go through, you know, reiterations? I know you did mention how this was... You already titled it before or while you were reading the Victorian education. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, this could have been a different title. But tell us about that journey. <laughs> yeah, I did, well, <laughs> yeah, the subtitle is The Lessons of Colonial Education. And that's obviously, you know, it's obviously trying to capture that sort of double-edged sort of inquiry I was trying to describe just now where it's it's colonial education you know both as colonialism and as education as it were Mm -hmm. that our civilizing mission I mean I slightly regret that choice if I'm honest (laughs) I have these moments when I choose to sort of be provocative and then I nearly always regret it and um I, I I think you know I guess it's it's misleading and risks giving the wrong sign um I mean, it's 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 provocative in an obvious sense. I mean, so the idea of the civilizing mission, the mission civilisatrice, you know, is part of the discourse of French colonialism. You know, part of the the um, purported justification of colonialism from the colonizers' perspective that they were spreading civilization to those who were uncivilized, and that there's a there's a religious dimension to that as as captured in the idea of mission. Um, obviously, the most provocative part of using that title is is sticking um, our on. The front. Um, what what I as I think I make clear quite quickly in in the book, although that may be too late, but it's already put off. Um, it's I'm not wanting to talk about um, what we in inverted commas may have inherited from the civilizing mission or prolonged in it, so much as our anxieties on that very issue. So it's supposed to resonate with people's anxieties. It, you know, the kind of anxieties in, in the wake of Saeed's Orientalism and so on about the ways in which colonial ideologies um, have been recirculated th- through canonical literature, through education, um, through into the present, even in a even in a nominally post-colonial um, era. So I, I suppose the start, my starting point is that I feel there's a level of anxiety around those issues and it's it's an attempt to kind of confront those and, and think through them to some extent. Um, and I say we in inverted commas, I mean, that's part of what's um, provocative about it. And I, I try to make clear that that's the we is is supposed to encompass anyone who's interested in, in the kind of education that I'm talking about here, which would be the kind of education that 
someone like Said had and then contributed to as a professor in due course and you know mm. again that there are differences across those situations but there's a kind of continuity um it's you know i don't i don't mean that in a kind of uh, a fully sort of geographically or historically kind of localized way i mean civilizing and mission are both <laughs> offensive as well of course now <laughs> in different ways i mean civilizing it's partly it's got that idea of um si- well mission is primarily religious in a way that, you know, again, many of us, including me, would want to distance ourselves from in terms of our notion of uh, education now. However, we might still be tempted to, I think, for good reasons, to talk in terms of a vocation or something like that as educators. And that's not so far from the idea of mission, you know, partly because they still, you know, share some of that sort of, some of the, con- the religious connotations, but in the sense also of some notion of a kind of... Um, you know, some sort of higher purpose, some sort of calling, something like that. So that echo is of interest to me too. And civilizing again, I mean, no one would use that word now and for quite good reasons, but I think one of the things that we can find hard to articulate now in in the um, environment we're in is a kind of positive account of what might be normative about the education that we're offering. So I told this about with colleagues the other day and about how, you know, how confused our first year students are, you know, our freshers uh, are sometimes when we, when we, when they're studying literature for the first time with us and we say, no, what do you think? And say what you like and all opinions are fine. And one of my colleagues is saying, yeah, well, we say that, but we know, they know we don't mean it. It's like not all opinions are fine. People <laughs> say something we think is totally wrong and we'll say, hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is yeah. you know, right? so that? So, yeah. I it, was just speaking to a professor about that. I was like, you know, we get told, even as a graduate student, you, you, the higher the education, they're like, yeah, everything is valid. But then, you know, they, you hear like, actually, that doesn't work <laughs> yeah exactly not everything is valid you know we're committed to certain norms of kind of rational argument and evidence and and i mean we choose what our students read that we choose how we spend their time and that that's caught up in value judgments and so um yeah so it's it's that that again this is all quite a long way i hope from the idea of civilizing at a certain point but nonetheless there's still a sense of us drawing people into a culture that has normative dimensions and in a sense trying to um trying to have an impact on our students you know trying to have have an effect on them you know that hoping they will be changed by their education and we've got to think about ways of that that don't sound or that aren't colonial or imperial (laughs) but that recognize nonetheless the kind of the inevitable normative dimension of what we're doing and that brings me, now I can clearly remember, I hope I don't get this wrong, but you mm. clearly have this sentence in your book where you say, this point of education is to change the person from what they're, from what they're not to what they are. Or it was something along those lines, which I was like, I had to stick with that for a little bit because it's, that is true regardless of, you know, whether it's rural areas, urban big universities, small universities, it's you come in as a blank slate and it's like, well, let's change you from this to whatever we want you to be. <laughs> um, so it's, mm. yeah, that, that, yeah, that is interesting. Well, not, yeah, I guess not a blank slate exactly right. I mean, of course, you come in with all all kinds of aspects of cult- culture and personality and background and, you know, values and so on as well. But no, nonetheless, um, 
you know, and that, that it, it, this connects also with distinctions, I suppose, between education and training, that some of the pressures on humanities education come from the direction. I mean, they come from many, many directions, sort of mm. economic and political and all kinds of directions. But I mean, that there's a, I suppose it feels to me as if there's a pressure towards something that's more like training, you know, with mm. very specific demonstrable outcomes in terms of skills. And I feel that's, of course, there's a place for that, but that's not what the, that's not the, the, the game that I'm in, you know, that that's not what I think I'm doing in, in a, in a discipline, um, such, such as mine. And that the, you know, if you, I don't know, you, you learn to drive, it's like you're the same person you were before and now you can drive. But if, you know, if, if you, if you go through a sort of humanities education, that's supposed to have some more profound effect on, mm-hmm. on, on who you are. And of course it's supposed to enable you to, um, develop in your own way and develop your own ideas and so on but nonetheless under quite specific stimuli and under the kind of um yeah within the kind of framework I was talking about just now in terms of the kind of normative dimension of the education so you mentioned um Edward Said's orientalism as in being important you know in your project but you Mm. also talk about his memoir out of place and how that served as a great example for this book. So how do you relate your project to his memoir of Out of Place? Well, um, I mean, Sa- Saeed has been very important to me. I mean, it probably almost goes, goes without saying, you know, doing the kind of work I've done in, in the period I've done it. As I said, I mean, I, you know, I... You know, I was, I was sort of bigging myself up as a kind of pioneer just now when I was talking about my, my beginning here. But of course, I'm following in the wake of a whole lot of other people, including him, who've opened up this whole space in which it was possible for me to think this working on so-called Francophone literature was a, you know, worthwhile and legitimate thing to do and, you know, something I wanted to pursue. Um, um, I mean, the, the memoirs of interest to me, partly because the the... The, the core material is Algerian in, in the book because that's, um, you know, that's what I teach and that's what I know, know most about in in, in, in some sense. Um, but I also wanted these examples to resonate, uh, you know, with, with, with people who aren't necessarily primarily or interested in that or don't have a prior interest in that. And, um, you know, and Said, of course, has the advantage of being very well known um, and such an influential figure for post-colonial studies in a broad mm-hmm. sense but also um because in his memoir then he talks about his own colonial education quite extensively and um and he seems to me a very good example of some of the kind of anxieties and hesitations around literary and humanities education that exist now e- e- even um, um, among those of us who from the outside perspective, might seem wholly and unproblematically committed to it, since that since that's what we do, right? But um, you know, and when he looks back on his own um, colonial education, you know, that I mean, I've got a couple of quotations here, just pulling up. But you know, he, it's as one would expect. He says, "Our lessons and books were mystifying the English. We read about meadows, castles, and kings John, Alfred, and Canute with the reverence that our teachers kept reminding us that they deserved." You know, it's quite it's quite funny some of it, but also quite. Um, bitter at times you know he says that the atmosphere is one of unquestioning assent framed with hateful civility by teachers and students alike the school was not interesting as a place of learning but it gave me my first extended contact with colonial authority and he's even rude about one of his teachers bad bad british teeth which (laughs) struck a chord (laughs) with me obviously but um 
But he, so all of that is as one would expect, I think, from our starting point now. This is what one would expect someone to say about colonial education as a dimension of colonialism. And yet, looking at the other side of the question that I'm also interested in, you think, yeah, but this, in some ways, this this seems to have led him into this amazing career as, mm-hmm. as an educator, one who's clearly very attached to, um, and he's, he, I should say, I mean, talking about the British schools, but he's, he's equally rude about his American yeah. um, educational institutions. And, you know, the, the things he studied there, he became deeply attached to, worked with very fruitfully in Orientalism and, you know, lo- lots of other works, um, you know, literature in English, to which, again, he has this kind of, that, that kind of complex colonial relationship akin to the one I was talking about earlier um so and and that the that ambivalence perhaps I mean I think that material is very interesting on the on the on the sort of personal level which is part of the interest of some of the other stories that I that I look at but but it's also very important in terms of critical methodology that that ambivalence runs right through the critical work so and this was just something I'd written I'd written about Said in essays a couple of times before this book um and when i first wrote about the i wrote about the place of literature in the book orientalism and about what i saw as his hesitations there because on on the one hand there are certainly moments when literature is swept up into these characteristic long lists of different genres different sorts Mm -hmm. of writers all of whom contribute to orientalism you know all of whose work um you know, feeds that the, the kind of the, you know, the sort of the toxic ideology of Orientalism at a certain level, and so it's very important part of his sort of iconoclastic energy in that book that these mm. these you know great texts are, are caught up in that. But then there are these other moments when it seems that the writers he really likes are kind of let off the hook, you know, and seen as different, and you know, and he 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 says things within Orientalism that are pretty much contradictory. On, on that score. Um, he wants to make exceptions for someone like Flaubert or Nerval, you know, um, take a couple of his sort of favourite French examples. Um, he thinks they are Orientalists, but he also thinks they're doing other things, that they've got a degree of detachment in relation to the kind of, um, yeah, in relation to Orientalism as a kind of political discourse. And I try to write about that in the past from a kind of methodological point of view and talking about the, the, the difficulties of combining two distinct critical methodologies, one, one of which is, is sort of literary critical and based on close reading and valorizes ambiguity and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And another of which is in a sense more socio-political and that really needs to take account of reception. I mean, it doesn't really matter what the author intended and it doesn't really matter um, exactly what clever stuff you can do with the words on the page if you're a trained critic. It matters more, Did this? how is this stuff received? Did it feed into orientalism into racism into imperialism um and you can't extrapolate those lessons from close reading you can't you can't work out how these texts travel through the world from close reading right so i think that's an important methodological point but it when i came back to all this stuff so i i, I self-plagiarize and repeat some of that stuff in the book but i also thought and in in sense a more simpler and more perhaps more compelling way to explain the differences these are the texts he teaches he behaves differently with the texts that he might teach in his comparative literature program so when it's an administrative support that's not what he studies and it's fine just to take it apart and say look this is ideologically 
toxic to repeat the phrase I used just now. Whereas with literary texts, he thinks he thinks he's got a different task, and that's tied up with his conception of teaching. So I wanted to I suppose some critics have side have thought that, you know, this this attachment to canonical literature and so on is just a, almost like a hangover of his colonial education. You know, that he, it's unfortunate he has these kind of high cultural prejudices, as it were, and that that's a kind of just a, a you know, an unfortunate vestige of colonialism in a sense. And I thought, well, I, I think there's more to it than that. I think he has some I think he I think he has some good reasons to think he remains attached to these texts. And I think he has to think that if he's going to keep teaching them. If he's going to keep making his students read read them, he can't think that all they're doing is recirculating toxins. And I think that's why I, you know, pointed out the quote you put in chapter one, where it, you ha- you mentioned how in an interview Saeed asked which role he felt most comfortable in that of a writer an activist or a teacher he responded a teacher because quote i've stuck pretty carefully to the notion that the classroom is sacrosanct to a certain degree Mm. Um, and it's interesting because now when i look at writer activist or teacher i think both of them i think all three can be combined into one um but breaking them down into, you know, three different categories is actually pretty interesting. But is this in line with what you're saying in terms of like how what he's reading versus what he's teaching is different? But I guess while you were working on this, did you it's just it's so hard to posit these questions because they, they don't exist in binaries. They exist like in this complex middle, this tension. Mm. But um, how did you find if we were to take Said as an example, his, mm. you know, his being in the classroom, and I guess what also what are your frustrations when you were working through this? When you were like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> well, I—I I mean, I—I I, I juxtapose that quotation with another one where he says, "Today's intellectual is most likely to be a closeted literature professor with a secure income and no interest in dealing with the world outside the classroom." Yeah. So this is like the mm-hmm. discourse. Of of tenured radicals he sounds very impatient that would you'd think somebody who said that would be very impatient with anyone who used a notion of a sacrosanct classroom right mm-hmm. um and so that that's the tension that as i as i perceive it in him mm-hmm. i mean i suppose one frustration from would be was that i i was never in his classroom i mean i you know i was in i was in uh uh conference halls with him you know a, a couple of times but I, I didn't know him and I wasn't certainly wasn't taught taught by him and you know in that sense of being taught by him in an educational setting um and I mean I, I spoke to one or two people who, who had been and said oh no well, what he says about how he behaved in the classroom it's a bit misleading <laughs> but um um but again I think that that may be true but um there's another interview I quote later on, and I, I, I found some sort of less well-known essays by him where he talked more about education. And he said, another, if I can read another quotation, he said, I don't advocate, and I'm very much against the teaching of literature as a form of politics. I think there's a distinction between pamphlets and politics. I don't think the classroom should become a place to advocate political ideas. I've never taught political ideas in the classroom. That's where some of his ex-students said, mm. <laughs> um, and he says, I believe that what I'm there to teach is the interpretation and reading of literary texts. Now, the thing is, it would be nice to know how, how truthful that is. And again, I think it's partly that you can't, you can't keep politics out of the classroom, even if you wanted to. And that whole question of what's inside and outside the classroom, that's already a crude 
way of putting it, right? That's another opposition, as, as you say, that that, that, that mis- misrepresents the kind of entanglements and all, all the reasons that we would want to bring politics into the classroom, including the politics brought into the classroom by the literary text that we're, we're reading, right? So, so, these, you know, so these things are not yeah. separable, but nonetheless, I think there's something... Um, something feels right to me in what he's saying there, nonetheless, right? That, I mean, him saying all of that is surprising. I think someone knows him as the author of Orientalism, someone who knows him as an advocate of intellectual, of the work of the intellectual, the work of the public intellectual, right? Someone who breaks down the distinction between pamphlets and novels, in a sense. Um, But I think, again, it's this commitment to a sort of set of practices, educational practices, that, that, you know, centre on cultural artefacts of various sorts that that, that find um, richness in them and find lessons in them, if you like, but often very complicated, knotted, perhaps contradictory ones. Um, and that, that these that the educational world around those objects is one in which they're, that, that can benefit from a certain kind of notional suspension of certain political questions um, or a certain notional distance from them, that, that that kind of suspension may be necessary to create a space in which um, in which those artefacts are taken seriously, but in which they're investigated in a spirit of kind of open-minded critical inquiry, you know, and with the ability to learn from the, the texts themselves, the objects themselves, as well as from fellow students, as well as from the teacher. You know, all of that seems to be characteristic of a humanities education, different from training, and I think probably di- different from what, you know, what different in what happens in other parts of the university. Mm-hmm. And so to touch on the other authors you, you know, talk about in the later chapter, so in chapter two, you get into more detail on the educational journey, such mm. as that of Lashenhoff. So... Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about him and how how did he play his role in your project? So does how does his suggestions function in the realm of your argument in regards to seeing colonial education beyond a mere tool of colonialism? Yeah, he's he's an interesting example. And um he I mean he's not I don't know if you'd come across him before, but he's not he's not well known outside. Algeria. I look just now actually get, getting ready to talk to you. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page in English. You know, I mean, that's 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 the depths of obscurity. Almost everyone has a Wikipedia page, right? Yeah. So he has one in French. He has one in Arabic. Um, he he's he led a remarkable life. He is well known in Algeria. He was he was born in 1917. He became an activist as a young man. He became a prominent figure in the FLN. He was part of that the group whose mm, flight yeah. was kidnapped, uh, it was, sorry, it was uh, intercepted by the French in 1956. He was put in prison, spent most of the War of Independence in prison, often in solitary confinement. Um, after independence, he, he worked as a journalist, um, an ambassador, um, an educational advisor, and he was actually education minister for a couple of years in the 1970s. And he wrote a lot as well, um, he published poetry, he published lots of articles, and he published books. One of those books in particular I talk about in my book, um, which is his memoir, which came out in 1998. Um, the subtitle of it is Memoirs of a Forgotten Algeria, Memoir d'une Algérie oubliée. Um, so why was he of interest to me in this project? I mean, one, one of the starting points of the project was that many anti-colonial leaders in the French Empire as in other parts of the world, went through colonial schools. 
Now that's that's well known, um, but I think that people often just kind of register it as a kind of paradox, as it were. Um, and um, I think often when something seems paradoxical, you need to push on and think, well, why why does it feel paradoxical? That that suggests mm -hmm. that um, there are there are you know some presuppositions in play that. Um, yeah, that may be wrong, and that's what's leading to a sense of kind of tension there, or at least need to be complicated. Um, so in this case, I suppose what I'm suggesting is the presupposition would be that colonial education was simply a servant and a tool of colonialism, you know, that it was a, just fundamentally only a vehicle of colonial indoctrination. Um, and um, what Lasharab suggests is that anyone who thinks like that, I mean, one of the things he suggests is that, ironically, anyone who thinks like that has been too swayed by colonial propaganda, um, the discourse of the civilizing mission. So as I, as I said earlier, you know, this is part of the rhetoric of French colonialism to say, well, we're going there and we're civilizing people and that would mean among other things, educating them. And he says, well, that's not right because after 132 years of this, the level of education is extremely low. You know, even after a big push on education towards the end of the colonial period, about 15, 1.5% of the population, uh, of the of the Algerian population, that's distinct from the European population, um, was was had even basic literacy, and the figures were lower for um, for, for girls and women than they were for boys and, and men. Um, so, uh, and um, the funding per head for colonised children was very significantly lower than for children from the European section of the population, and so on. Right. So, in other words, the, the French. We're not serious about the civilizing mission in that sense, um, and and there was always a lot of internal opposition to it. There was a huge opposition to colonial education from colonists on the ground who always thought precisely that. Well, they're going to get it's going to give them ideas. They're going to it's going to yeah. you know, and they weren't completely wrong about that, right? Yeah. Um, as and so Lasharaf countered that propaganda through that kind of historical argumentation and other historians have followed up on that subsequently, Aisa Kadri, uh, Kamal Katev and others. Um, but he's also exploring, he's also coming at that question from a different angle as one of the one of the tiny minority, the tiny minority who benefited from a kind of post-primary education, you know, who got far enough with their education to be able to write in French, right, which is, the, mm. that's my kind of corpus. And they're, in a, you know, an infinitesimally small part, part of the population get, gets to that point gets you know gets so educated and yeah. so good at French that they can they can write these books and memoirs and so on. Quite a lot of them, as I was saying when we were talking about the sort of issue of language politics, of course, had, had only a French education. He was unusual because he he went to the most prestigious French lycée in Algiers, but then he also went um, for six years to the the Madrasa d'Alger, so the the Madrasa in Algiers. Mm -hmm. So that's a secondary level Islamic or Islamic educational institution. And it's one that was supported by, that was founded by and supported by the, the French authorities. And this is into the age, the official age of laicity, right? And this, and this goes on for a long time. So they're very, um, so the very existence of that institution is a sign of French colonial inconsistency or hypocrisy when it comes to colonial education because they're transgressing the, the declared um, Republican value of, 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 of laicite as it exists from the early 20th century. Um, and again, you get some of that 
Part of his story is about forms of discrimination he encountered. You know, there were librarians at the lycée who hid, hid books from him because they thought they weren't suitable for a kid like him. You know, this kid who was in a sort of small minority, they were going to give him kind of dangerous ideas. Um, mm. But he also notes that it was in his lycée that he discovered modern Arabic literature. Um, and he explores, he, he sees a lot of positive things of having come out of his French spodged education, especially in the, in the Medessa. Okay, so this is someone, remember, who's he's known mainly as a socialist and a nationalist ideologue, right? He's a fierce critic of French colonialism. He's someone who championed Arabic as a national language. He he taught, he was a teacher of Arabic at one point, but he also championed bilingualism. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted French to remain the official Algerian language, which which it didn't, of course. And and he described the educational culture in in the madrasa as, I mean, someone has to whether to say it in the French word, the English word, and garbling them but he's, he, he talks about the education in terms of literary arab or Ar- arabic arab um, and maghrebi humanities or humanism he talks about critical comparativism and this kind of wide-ranging education based on curiosity and great intellectual freedom now he's got some access to grind in terms of the algerian politics and his account is idealized in some way so i don't want to sound as if i'm being naive about that or falling into that trap but it does seem to me that through his writing and through his life story he offers this very striking exemplification of the fact that what happened inside these anomalous colonial educational structures including the lycée but also the madassa just cannot be reduced to the work of colonialism in any simple sense that's um, that's really interesting, and it's I, you putting into or mentioning to us that he was also an advocate for bilingual bilingualism mm. makes me think how that generation, you know, between the forty five to at least sixties with the whole independence that was booming out mm. of the continent. Many of them were advocates for multilingualism or bilingualism. And that, you know, answers your question before we hit recording of mm. how did I learn Wolof? Well, <laughs> um, right. I was born outside the continent, but I had no choice. <laughs> there was yeah. no, you know, it was, they were, my parents were not researchers. They were not linguists. <laughs> they, yeah. they were yeah. just like, you want to speak to us? You, and it was, it was like an automatic thing, you know, like, my mom had a British Council dictionary in every single room. <laughs> and so she was like, it's going to be English and it's going to be well off. You know, they were they were a little, they were like French, you know, if you're going to France, but English is going to be far reaching. Mm. But to, to your point of how we look at, we, the civilizing mission, and it makes more sense now that we're t- I'm talking to you about this, it can, that colonial propaganda can distract us from, the other things that it also did, right? And also really noticing this tension. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I'm and, not, I mean, just to be absolutely clear, of course, I'm not, uh, I'm really not in any sense of trying, there's no justification of colonialism in the book. I'm, I'm anti-colonial. And there's not, there's not, there's not a, there's not a, you know, and there's not, I'm obviously not an advocate of colonial education, but, but, but within those, but nonetheless, they were, educational spaces in so even under those most hostile least propitious circumstances there was something of value in them it's educational so you know um institutions and that that's that's what i want to try and learn 
learn something from. I mean, coming back to what you're saying about. Hope no one listens to this and they're like, well, they're advocates for colonial education. <laughs> no, no, like, yeah, that's my great, one of my, one of my many fears, I guess. But, um, yeah, but I, I think it's clear enough if you read it, even if, as I say, the title may be misleading. <laughs> but I was going to say, too, I mean, the other thing about the bilingualism is that, again, it's it's absolutely clear and absolutely understandable how uncomfortable it is to to be a writer in French from an Algerian, you know, from a colonised background. Um, that's heartfelt. There were writers in Algeria who stopped writing just because they couldn't stand writing in French and couldn't write in anything else. So all of that... I understand, but it's um, but it's also there's a level on which again connecting it back with teaching. I mean, yeah, many of us we the, the first languages we speak we have no choice about. You grow up with them as you were just describing. But I mean, I again I'm in a slightly different business. I'm like getting all these people to learn French who haven't grown up with French. I mean, it's, in my case, right? I just happen to get on with it at school and then I pursue it and so and you know so I'm in the business of pushing the idea that it's really enriching to learn another language to be bilingual or mm -hmm. multilingual right and so that's that's not in any way to discount the um the the sort of the the the, the, the well all, all that surrounds the learning of that language in the colonial context and all that makes it painful and uncomfortable but there's some level on which um once you've moved outside that situation, then you think, well, yeah, okay, more more languages. This is a good thing, you know, for individuals, for for cultures, um, you know, interaction across languages and so on. This is this is something we 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 believe in without being naive about all the all that can be politically charged and um, you know. Um, well, you know, sort of uh, problematic in that area, to put it mildly. And the thinking too, right? Because it, learning another mm. language allows you to, you think differently, even if you, you don't want to, or you may not realize, but at least in my case, I mm. can't say I strictly think, thinking in Wolof or even trying to think in French, it's it's different. You're, I'm not thinking underneath the same context. I never feel mm. like... Um, thinking in English for me is very technical, <laughs> you know, so it's, um, mm. it's, it opens up different consciences, I think. So it's, and then, so reading, mm. for example, the reason why I'm, I think I'm obsessed with Ba is because she's, it takes a lot, I think, to write in a language, master that language, but come in from a different context or another background so you're, it's like you're operating mm. with two brains <laughs> and putting that on one paper mm. in, so the words can be like shadows or ghosts or something can exist underneath mm. the words. Um, so it, it makes sense when you're speaking about Saeed. I'm like, yeah, we see these tensions of like, okay, he said this, but then it's that in, but it's, um, but mm. it's the example of, of what this project mm. is, of, mm. what, of what the civilizing mission is. <laughs> mm. Another thing that interested me um, is we often when we hear about like the educational policies, we hear from policymakers and educationalists, but you do dedicate a section to the families. So what prompted you mm. to include family and the families to who the colonial education goes to? Yeah, um, I well. I thought it was important again. It's part, partly just trying to understand the 
the experience of education. You know, that that in a way was what I wanted to look at, the experience of education, of colonial education specifically, and the different um, the different ways in which it could play out and the different motivations of people um, who were who were who promoted it or were against it, you know, who, who were involved in it in various various ways. Um, you know, it's often it's it's of course often when you're studying colonial histories, it's harder to access the the voices of of the colonized, you know, and I got limited access to a lot of the families, or you know, any very indirect access to the the families of these people. Often, precisely because they were, you know, many of the writers I'm talking about, they they not all of them, but many of them had um, parents who were both illiterate or um, certainly not literate in French. In in, in most cases, I mean, Jebar's father was a um, a, a teacher mm-hmm. of French as as you will know, so she's one of the people I talk about. But this, um, you know, through them, you get a sense of what what their families, um, through these writers, the people who've got drawn into the French language and French country, that you can then get a, a, a sense of what was at stake. And, I mean, again, the... Um, I suppose it's also, again, coming back to that point about colonial propaganda. P- part of the problem in, in believing the rhetoric of the mission civilisatrice is, is not only that it you risk uh, overestimating how serious the colonial authorities were about education, but you also risk making the the colonised population sound rather passive. You know that the um, that, that they, as it were, in also just kind of um, imbibed the kind of colonial. <laughs> line you know um and in fact what you find of course i mean the sense as you would expect when you start to look at it in more detail is is that um there's a very wide range of of motivations and forms of engagement and you know there there are um families and individuals who seem to be won over by the propaganda um um at least for a time i mean the 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 intellectual and writer Jean Amrouche, who I talk about a little bit um, in in the chapter that's mainly on Ferron. I mean, he some of his writing is is highly propagandistic, you know, of a colonial nature for a time um, in essays and so on, not in his poetry. But at a certain point, he he snaps, you know, and he he he, he kicks back very hard, very hard against colonialism. But you see people who, as it were, buy into the kind of the colonial propaganda. But you see a whole lot of families, individuals who are sceptical about it all, all along, whose motivations can be very pragmatic, you know, sometimes as pragmatic as it's somewhere for the children to go and be warm and get a meal, you know, um, and then they maybe stop attending when they need to, um, to help out with the harvest. And, you know, you have you have that 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 kind of issue. So all kinds of m- motivations, um, again, not all of which reflect well on colonialism, Um and um but they show too that people can engage with these things in imaginative ways you know and among teachers as well i mean again there are a number of memoirs by teachers that i draw on and you know again you you get you get a wide spectrum uh, of perspectives there including teachers who are anti-colonial but are engaged in colonial education nonetheless and who see within that a space of of possibility you know, in suboptimal circumstances, but which of us is not in suboptimal circumstances? You know, it's an extreme example of a more general issue in my mind in that way. So in your introduction, but then you circle back to it in the conclusion, you also talk about the crisis around humanities. 
How do you think mm. you relate this project, you know, around that conversation? I feel like these are really big questions. So feel free to think through them. <laughs> but it's it was just it was interesting to yeah. see how, you know, the way you were breaking down colonial education, mm. it seems like I, my takeaway was you're like, well, it may not be a bad thing to have this crisis, <laughs> you know, like maybe, maybe this is a time for us to emerge from the origins of what the humanities um, used to be. So that gave me hope as compared to hearing the crisis, humanities and crisis for the past 10 years. And then me just like putting my head down and going straight into it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you took hope from it, I'm really pleased. I mean, that, that, yeah, I, that's that's interesting. And I, I, I mean, you said, how did I engage with it? And the answer, I, uh, what the one word answer that would be obliquely. I think. I mean, I, I wanted people. I do want it to be encouraging. I want it to be open to a lot of different responses. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I say obliquely also because there's there's something, you know prospectively damaging about the rhetoric of crisis around the humanities you know i did i did think you know that's another thing i wondered about putting in my subtitle you know i think oh if i put the cry you know colonial education and the crisis of humanities that's going <laughs> to pack in the punters i mean i don't you know i don't think it would have done but um but it, that was tempting but i thought i don't necessarily want to just repeat mm. that rhetoric you know um and it risks running together very different notions around it around crisis you know so the, the, you know one one version of that would be about you know casualization and um short-term contracts and exploitation and you know which is not just the humanities but may affect the humanities particularly for various reasons that's that's not my that's a real issue but that's not my subject another sense of crisis which i think is more the kind of thing you were just alluding to is is a kind of well a kind of you know intellectual crisis a kind of a loss of confidence in certain things, an urge to reinvent. I suppose in that, I mean, maybe your way of putting it isn't quite how I put it in the sense that I, you know, doubt and the urge to reinvent, that's that's absolutely essential. That's that's the lifeblood. That's what keeps keeps us kind of alive in, you know, in, in doing what we do. Um, but I also think that some, some of the anxiety seems to me sort of, counterproductive or, or misdirected you know i mean this comes back to what i was trying to trying to say about saeed as well that i think um at a certain point i just want to in, encourage a certain kind of um confidence in people's minds about the validity of a humanities slash literary education it doesn't have to be literature i mean i teach film as well myself and other things you know i mean i'm always interested in the example of music as well actually as a as an educational field because i think it's it's much harder in music, seems to me, to default to a certain sort of political explanation for one's activities, which is often the norm in kind of lit literary studies now. And I think it's harder in music as well not to recognise that your your sort of prior confidence in the value of music is kind of one of the bases of the whole yeah. thing, right? So that you know, so in in this case, I think there's something uh, our confidence in the value of the materials that are teaching centers on and is you know is is nourished by is something i wanted to kind of reassert at a certain point i mean i did echo the the i i didn't use the, it in the title there was a there's a chapter called teaching in a time of in a time of crisis you'll remember which i think is i think is 
think it's the best chapter to be honest it's the one i i like best in the end and it's a, it's a very it's it's the most narrowly focused on a particular figure Ferron, who i alluded to just now who um was one of the first main generation of francophone writers from algeria came from a very modest background, you know, scooped up into edu- education. So it's a kind of classic story in the sense of, of the sort that I'm telling, becomes a teacher himself. Again, that was most people, most Algerians who got beyond primary education, you know, went further. And, I mean, um, a big majority of them then became mm-hmm. teachers. They, you know, some became pharmacists or doctors, but the big majority became teachers. So he, he gets brought back into this. And he is one of these people who's um, anti-colonial, although that someone has been mistaken by his readers. But if you read the right things, that's absolutely clear. Um, he's anti-colonial and he carries on teaching in a colonial education system. So he's anti-colonial and in some sense pro-colonial education in a way I think that would, people you know, would be surprised by before looking into the story. And he carries on teaching throughout the War of Independence. And that means he gets death threats from both sides in the War of Independence. That I mean, teachers, teachers like him from an Algerian background are, are killed by combatants on both sides, um, from the French colonial side, um, and it, um, because people think, well, he's an Algerian, he's going to be spreading propaganda in the in the schools, and then of course from the nationalist side, they think, well, colonial schools, these are instruments of colonialism, he's spreading propaganda, <laughs> right? Um, and he was killed just right before the end of the war. In the end, he was assassinated. Um, but he, so he carried on teaching, and I was interested in looking at his example. I mean, I suppose there's a, I gave a couple of papers, you know, I was preparing the book called Teaching in a Time of Crisis, and I thought, ha-ha, everyone <laughs> thinks I'm going gonna, gonna to be talking about me and them. It's mm. like, this again, it's an extreme example. It's a very extreme example. Um, it gives you a bit of perspective on our own sense of crisis, maybe, in, in some very crude crude way. But, but the, the main point is more just to try to understand how someone who's anti-colonial and in the middle of a war can think it's still okay to carry on doing doing that work, you know, and that's something to do with the, the value of what he thinks he's teaching and that form of teaching, uh, which he doesn't think is going to contribute in any um, direct or immediate way to the success of the anti-colonial movement, but that he thinks has another value, you know, these are other values and other temporalities that run run alongside that and that, that he thinks are worth sustaining and need to be sustained as well. So while you were writing this book, I don't know if you had a certain type of reader in mind, um, whether they were sitting by the fireplace or a beach or a classroom. 